Hi guys. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, today we're looking at that passage, seeing our identity in Christ. Um, and you might want to grab your book, or you can see the outlines online if you click on the front page of our website. So that's there. Cool bananas. Uh, Ephesus uh, is part of Asia Minor. Uh, we call it Turkey today. It was part of the Roman Empire in the first century. But its culture is Greek. <laughs> uh, shout out to Mel, who's Greek, right? <laughs> and um, Alexander the Great conquered Ephesus along with most of the world <laughs> and turned Ephesus into a Greek city. So Greek culture dominates the city of Ephesus. So I want to look at how our identity in Christ is different from their understanding of identity in Greek culture. Well, firstly, identity in the world of Ephesians. The Greeks saw humans as the centre of everything. The naked human body was the highest form of worship and beauty. The Greeks were driven by the ideal of beauty, courage, valour, achievement. How smart are you? How brave are you? How thin are you? How beautiful are you? How well can you climb to the top? How well can you dominate your competition? How good are you? Can you be the best? Sounds a lot like our culture. One historian says of the Greek culture of that time, glory won by achievement was agreed to be a straight path to heaven. Achievement, accomplishment, how intelligent are you? How beautiful are you? How gifted athletically are you? How well can your, you discipline your body to be better than anybody else's body? This was the heart and centre of the Greek worldview. There were gymnasiums in all the major cities of the Greek world. It wasn't just your body. It was about developing your mind and soul. You'd go to the gymnasium. You'd offer incense to the gods and then you'd work out. <laughs> There'd be a huge area at the centre of the gymnasium where there would be sports they would throw the javelin. They would throw the discus. They would wrestle. They would run. So you'd give your body a workout. Tone your body. Perfect your body. But then afterwards there were classrooms in the colonnades around the edge of this open area where you would learn classical Greek. You would learn the myths of the Greek gods. You would learn Greek poetry. You would be immersed in the Greek worldview. So there were gymnasiums. And then there were the temples, beautiful marble-covered temples where you would worship the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, Apollo, Zeus, Hermes, Demeter, idol statues, the glory of Rome and the glory of Greece. Combined. There was also the arena. There'd be 
thousands and thousands of people who would gather to watch sports. Um, in Ephesus, the arena had 75,000 people in its capacity. Imagine 75,000 people gathering together in the Blue Mountains. That's nearly the whole population of the Blue Mountains. Would everybody be talking about it? Absolutely. There was also the theatre, where the dramas and the plays that would further the Greek worldview were performed. Plays to the gods, plays about the Greek heritage. The theatre overlooks the city, you can see there. And the idea was that as you looked at the theatre, as the, as the action unfolded, you realised that you were meant to be part of that same action, that the backdrop of the play was the city of Ephesus itself. Implication, you're meant to act out this drama in your life. Now imagine you're a Christian and you're not into all of this stuff. You don't have the beautiful idols in your home. You don't go to the temples. You don't worship the gods. And your friends, they're going to the theatre. They're talking about the plays. They're memorising the poetry of the Greeks. Right? And you, you go to church. Nobody goes to church. A tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of the population in those times went to a Christian church. So your friends are like, did you see the gladiator in the great arena? On the weekend. No, I went to church. So you can see, I hope you've got a feel here, for the power of Greek and Roman culture. The theatre, the arena, the gladiators, the chariot races, the plays, the dramas, the poetry, the philosophy of the Greeks. So what happens in a culture where your identity is based on what you achieve or how beautiful you are, if your value comes from how pretty you are and your worth comes from how well you do athletically and your merit and standing in the community is based on how intelligent you are, what will happen in a culture like that? What happens when somebody is born deformed? This presented a real challenge to the Greek world. Because if a baby was deformed or disabled in any way, they believed it was the disfavour of the gods on that household. And so there were many historical sources showing that people would take their children if they were in any way deformed or defected and if in any way they wouldn't be growing up into the good Greek boy or girl, they'd take that child up the hill just outside the east gate of Ephesus and leave it to die. We don't want this child in our home. This is called infanticide. And in Greek culture, this was very, very widely practised. So if you lived in the Greek city of Ephesus, there would be babies 
up the hill just outside that east gate where there would have been children left to die. Now, fortunately, there were people who went up on the hill and they'd sort through these deformed or defected babies and they'd choose babies who had some promise as slaves. And there was a booming slave trade in Ephesus. And they'd take that baby and adopt that baby and take it home and raise it as their own son or daughter in order that that baby would become their slave. And we learn later in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he addresses masters and he addresses slaves. So the intended audience of this letter to the Ephesians includes masters and slaves. So Paul mentions slaves and masters in this letter so we can only assume that some of the people hearing this letter read were slaves, perhaps left to die up on the hill outside of Ephesus and then collected. And there would have been masters listening as well, people who had gone up the hill to find a baby, take it home and make it their slave. Now with that background, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, our identity in Christ. Look at verse 3, and I hope you can follow along in your Bibles. Um, We'll be going through verse by verse. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God. And this was my favourite verse when I was 16 years old. I memorised this. It meant so much to me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, not all the translations have the word blameless here. It's the Greek word which means without defect or blemish. So how does Paul begin his letter? God chose us in Christ before the world began to be holy, to be set apart, to be without deformity or defect in his sight. Now this letter called Ephesians was probably read out initially in the courtyard of a large house where 20, 40 or 70 Christians would meet. That's where they gathered in a home that was centred around a courtyard. Masters, slaves, men, women and children. God shows you before the creation of the world to be in Jesus, holy and without defect. He sees you in Jesus. He doesn't see your deformities. He sees you as holy, as perfect, without blemish. Next verse. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ 
in accordance with his pleasure and will. The word predestined, he decided beforehand to adopt us as his sons through Jesus. I doubt the first people who heard this read. I doubt they had a heated theological debate about predestination. The first people probably wept. Adoption to them was going up on the mountain and taking home the babies that were all messed up and had deformities and raising them as your own child. And Paul begins and says, God decided beforehand to adopt you as his children. I can only assume that there were people there when they read this, they just had to stop and weep and weep and weep. God is the God who goes up on the mountain and chooses us to take us home. And he says to us, I want to be your father. I want you as my child. I see you in Christ as absolutely perfect, holy, blameless, without defect. Can you imagine having been, des- having been deserted by your parents and left on a hill to die? You weren't beautiful enough. You weren't smart enough. You didn't have the capacity for wisdom that the Greeks demanded. Can you imagine living your life with that knowledge that your parents did that to you? Can you imagine being a slave? Your parents didn't want you. And you read this text and Paul says, God has adopted you in Jesus as his own child. Here is a father who wants you. It's all in accordance with his plan, his pleasure, Paul says. He wanted it and God's will. It displeased the gods that they were deformed, but it pleases God to make them whole. Your identity in Christ has nothing at all to do with your beauty, your achievement, your intelligence, your sporting prowess. It has nothing to do with those things. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Maybe the gospel and the grace of God should be understood as, I was a baby up on a hill left to die. But God hiked up, died on a cross in order to bring me home. And then, as Stuart mentioned, Paul just launches. Paul just rants and rants from this point in. Superlative after superlative It's one huge long sentence that just never ends. He does not draw a breath. Verse 13, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
So having adopted us as his children, and even though we were nothing, he has given us his spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So now we, were, we are God's. Now we have his spirit. Now we are his kids. Now we are his family. And that means we will inherit something. We will inherit our father's wealth. And the spirit of God is the first taste of this future that we cannot even dream of. Look what he says in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Our inheritance is glorious riches. Riches that we could never comprehend. If you could only get your head around that, says Paul, I pray that the eyes of your heart may open up to what you are now part of. We're talking about absolute extravagance given. We're talking about the new creation of all things given to us. We will inherit it. It is ours. 1 Corinthians 3 says, All things are yours in Christ. The whole creation is yours in Christ. Paul is on a roll. I pray that you may know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then he concludes in chapter 2, verse 6, And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ. Notice all the words he uses as he just kind of piles it on. Verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Verse 19, God's incomparably great power. Then he repeats the word power. That power is like the mighty strength he exerted. When he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Right hand means the position of strength and power. Far above, verse 21, all rule and authority, power and dominion. Power repeated a third time. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And he placed all things under his feet. Something under your feet means you rule it. And he is head over everything. That means he rules it. Just get the point. Jesus Christ has all authority, all power. He rules everything. And you are seated with him. Now, Ephesus is a center of world power. That's why Paul is saying this. The powerful goddess Artemis, 
had her world headquarters here, the Artemisian. A first century historian said, I've seen everything, I've seen the pyramids, but nothing prepared me for the sight of the temple of Artemis. They found boundary stones 30 kilometres away from the temple, marking the temple area. Absolute power, massive wealth. Ephesus also had the best artists, the best painters, the best sculptors. Ephesus was also a banking centre. There was a market, an agora in Ephesus, where people from all over Asia Minor would buy and sell things. It was the Tokyo, the London, the New York of its day. There was a massive library there. Knowledge is power. So it was a creative centre of learning. There was also the theatre there, the biggest in the world. There'd be political rallies. There'd be cultural events. The Emperor Domitian ruled just after this. He had a massive statue of himself in Ephesus, nine metres high. A nine metre high statue to convey his power and, and might. The greatest empire the world had ever seen, the Romans, and the greatest ruler, Domitian. And it's to these Christians, 20, 30, 40, 70, huddled together with all this going on around them. And it's to these Christians that Paul says, you have the power in Christ. Christ is far above all rule and authority. You are seated with him. You share his rule and reign. He is the one who controls the destiny of the universe. Not Domitian, not Artemis, not Zeus. Jesus Christ and you are in him and you are seated with him and you have authority from him and for him. See, what does chapter 2 verse 6 mean? God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is saying we are in Christ, which means everything he has is ours. He's been installed in glory, so we share in that glory. He is reigning all things, so we, because we are united with him, share in that reign. This is the secret life of everyone who belongs to Jesus that the world simply does not see. What does this mean? It means that whatever we do in Christ's name is the real power of the universe. I mean that. What we are exercising as we obey Jesus and partner with him is the real power in this world. The real power. Do you believe that? It is the absolute ultimate power as we love one another, as we grow in him and his, as his kingdom comes in and through us. We are part of the remaking of 
the world. What does that mean? It means we're ruling the world, aren't we? Isn't that just what it's saying? We are the rulers of the world. It's not our, it's not our power. It's nothing to do with us and our strength. It's Christ's strength and power through us as we obey and follow him and pray and speak the gospel which brings life. We're ruling the world. We're reigning with him as his sons and daughters as we wait for the inheritance of all things. And Paul says, do you want to know who you are? This is who you are. Through the Spirit, in Christ, this is who you are. You were nothing. The world thinks you're nothing. But you have been adopted as the sons and daughters of God. And you have been raised up and seated with him in comparative incomparably great power is at work through you this is your identity this is your identity and having explained that and it takes i guess Paul kind of three chapters to really get his head around it and to talk about that we're heirs together built into a new body We don't do this on our own. And then chapter 4, verse 1. All right, this is who you are. Do you believe that? Do you? Do you believe this? Is this true? Is this who you are? Then live that out. Live from that truth. You are now blameless in Christ. It's like saying, why are you walking? You're a bird. Start flying. We are heirs of the whole creation. Live in that truth. Now this is absolutely outrageous, isn't it? It's absolutely outrageous. That I am a son of God, inheriting the whole creation, sitting with Christ and ruling all things. Honestly, honestly, how can this be? Because I was nothing. I was a little kid left on the hill to die, struggling around, unable to feed myself, unable to survive. And Jesus came and got me and brought me home. Now for me, this changes everything. As a Christian, I'm not just told to do stuff. I am told to do stuff. That's brilliant. I love it. But I'm not just told to do it. I'm also given authority to do it. Real power to accomplish the good works that God has given me to do. Ephesians 2.10. But I'm not only given 
authority to do it. I'm told, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm told that I have the full rights of sons and that it, that it is in this capacity as an heir and son of God that I am called upon to act and live for Christ in the world. It's from my identity. I've been given a calling. I've been given authority. But I've also been given dignity. I am no longer regarded as a nothing. But as a son of God. With all the rights and privileges that that implies. So when God tells me to do stuff in the Bible, there's an energy, there's a motivation that wells up within me because the Spirit keeps telling me, this is who you are. This is who you are. And as we speak the gospel to one another, as we talked about last week, we're constantly reminding ourselves of this truth. And the Spirit is constantly going, yes, this is who you are. And then we want to live in this truth. Amen.